1: Hello. Welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I am in dialogue with Dr. Sarah Hoff. She is Jay and Jeannie Schottenstein Chair in Jewish Studies at Indiana University, and also Associate Professor in Religious Studies and in the Bourne's Jewish Studies program at Indiana University. We will be discussing her new book, The Lives of Jesse Samter. Queer Disabled Zionist, published by Duke University Press 2022. Sarah, it's it's a sincere privilege to be in communication with you today.
0: It's great to get to talk to you again, Ari. For our listeners, Ari and I have known each other since the University of Chicago more than a decade ago when he was taking uh, Hebrew classes and I was a TA. So it's wonderful to be back in contact.
1: Thank you. Can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up, what formative events in your life inspired the scholar you would become as an adult? Did you go through anything in life that inspired you to enter Jewish studies? And would you be comfortable to share?
0: Yeah, I grew up in New Jersey. I went to a big public high school. And Um, encountered a number of different religious practices in the world around me, within my own family. And then I went to college and discovered religious studies, Uh, the idea that we could think critically about religion in the world around us, in the present, and the past. And that really excited me. So I majored in math because that was practical. And then I also added a religious studies major because I loved it. And then it turned out a little while after I graduated that I missed religious studies and wanted to go into graduate school. And so I attended graduate school um, and one thing led to another. And here I am um, teaching in religious studies and Jewish studies, uh, which is an absolute privilege. It's a path that's quite difficult and there aren't many positions any longer. And so I feel very privileged to have uh, ended up doing something I love.
1: What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers?
0: This book surprised me a little bit. It came sneaking around the corner. Um, I was doing some research for my first book, which was about masculinity and American Judaism. And one of the chapters in my first book was about how Jews in the U.S. thought about Zionism, and masculinity. And I had a lot of evidence about how Jewish men thought about masculinity and Zionism. But I didn't have so much evidence about how women were thinking about masculinity and Zionism. And I had seen Jesse Sampter's name come up a couple of times, but I didn't know very much about her. And so when I was at the Central Zionist Archives in Jerusalem looking for other material, I thought I would look up her material and see if she had anything interesting to say about masculinity and Zionism. And in the end, she didn't have much to say about masculinity, but I thought, holy cow, this woman is so interesting. There's so much material here. She wrote in so many different kinds of genres, poetry, essays, books, educational material. And she lived a really interesting life. And so I thought, I will write an article about this woman when I am done with my masculinity book. Um, So I did a little more research on her. And then I decided, actually, I wanted to write an entire book about her because she was so compelling. She also created this puzzle for me because she had polio as a child, and um, had some physical disability for the rest of her life. And yet she became a Zionist, especially at a time when Zionism was very much identified with healthy bodies, with being strong, with upbuilding the land in Palestine. And those weren't things that were fully available to her physically. She also didn't marry or procreate, which were some other Zionist ideals especially for women to raise Jewish children in Palestine that would later become Israel. Um, So she was a fascinating puzzle to me. She was really smart and really thoughtful and yet her life looked like it held these contradictions.
1: What are the primary themes in your book? What argument does your book advance?
0: So I think I've hinted at some of that already. Um, The The primary argument, I suppose we could say, is that Samter was distinctive. She led this very interesting life. I've suggested some of it already. There are other bits and pieces too, like she adopted a Yemenite toddler. Um, She lived much of her life with her adult life with a woman named Leah Berlin. They made financial decisions together. Um, So some of that is about just telling the life of a very interesting person. But in other ways, I think she's much more representative of maybe human experience as a whole. And in that sense, I'm thinking about the ways that her embodied life didn't always line up exactly with her political ideas or her religious ideas. And that, I think, when we come right down to it, Is something most of us can relate to. Um, It's complicated to think about how our embodied lives and our embodied experiences might match up with our philosophies or our religious ideals, and that became a she became a very interesting way for me to think about that question.
1: What would you like listeners to get out of our dialogue today?
0: I'd like listeners to reflect on their own sense of their embodied lives and how their um, religious ideals or political ideals might match up with them. And I think also to remind us to think historically and to remember that the complications of today are not necessarily more complicated um, or more difficult or more confusing than many of the complications of the past. So that was one thing that I thought about when I was researching Samter and her life. I thought about many of my students in the classroom often think, oh, today in the 21st century, things are so much more complicated, they're harder. We have these more complex ideas and more things to think about. And I don't think that's true. I think that um, at every moment in the past, lives have been complex and um, worth pausing to think about and worth sitting with things that might seem to be contradictory.
1: There are many people you think in your acknowledgements, would you like to publicly express gratitude to anyone in particular? If yes, why were they helpful to you? How did they assist?
0: Um, I mean, the joy and difficulty of acknowledgments is there are so many people to thank. And I couldn't possibly thank them all. But I think for me, the book wouldn't have been what it was without the support of my colleagues. Uh, My colleagues at Indiana have been wonderful to think with. My colleagues across Jewish studies have been... Really smart and probing, um, and supportive of a project that's not necessarily a run of the mill Jewish studies project, Um, and of course my family. Um, So yeah, there. In some way, there are so many people to thank. Um, One of the themes of this book is thinking uh, relationally. So one of the things that I think we learned from disability studies is that none of us is actually an isolated individual running around in the world doing things um, autonomously, completely autonomously. And um, and so I don't think that about the writer either. And so the writer in this case is me, and I couldn't have done this autonomously. And even if I had done it in sort of isolation, that would still be in many ways in relationship to others, what other academics have thought, um, what I've heard other people analyze and describe and think about at conferences. Um, So I guess in some way, the acknowledgments will never be long enough to get everyone in, because I think of this book as other academic works, too, as a a profoundly relational one.
1: What was it like seeing a sign with a Jesse Samter quote on it in India? When did you see it? How did you come across it? What does the quote say and mean?
0: So this is a story that I tell in the fifth chapter of the book. Um, And for anyone who hasn't read it, I'm a little bit of a character in my own book. So one of the ways that I approached Samter was to do some of the things that she did to go the places that she went. And one of the things that was on my list to do was to find a road sign that was in India that had a quote from Jesse Samter, And the quote comes from the middle of a poem. And that quote is, simplicity is the peak of civilization. And so you might wonder, why is this on a road sign? I wondered that too. Um, it comes from a genre of road signs that say weird things. Some of them are about driving. Like one of them says, lane driving is safe driving, i.e. drive in your lane, not just everywhere. Um, and all of these signs are in a region in India um, around Leh Ladakh that has, it's very mountainous. The lanes are often very narrow. There's sometimes ice or snow. There's often gravel. Um, and so they these signs encourage you to pay attention to driving. But some of them also just have other things on them, like a Jimmy Buffett quote or a Jesse Scepter quote. So I did my best to track this down. I tried asking the, the, it's the army who actually runs the unit that paints them. The army wanted nothing to do with me. I tried another way into the bureaucracy. Nope, you cannot have an appointment with anyone. Nope, we have no archives. No, we have no idea how these things happen. how would a road sign get there? We simply don't know. Um, So I got stonewalled. And the best that I could do was to um, imagine where it was by looking at maps. Um, I think we found the place. But the, the sort of sad ending to this story is when we got there, the sign was still there, but it had been painted over and there was a new saying on it. So I could have been extraordinarily disappointed. I'll admit I was a little disappointed, but it also made me realize in a very concrete way that there are lots of things about a person from the past that we can't know anymore, that we don't have access to. Um, That's also true about people in the present, right? There are things that we can't know about them that we don't have access to, but especially people from the past. And so this was a good reminder for me that just because this sign had been painted over, didn't mean that it wasn't meaningful. It didn't mean that lots of people didn't drive by it and think who's Jesse Sampter, or that seems like an interesting quote or something else. Um, But we just don't know. We don't know what those people thought or who they were. And we can't ask anyone now because no one's driving by to see a Jesse Sampter quote. So In a way, it felt like an important reminder near the end of research where I had done a lot and I knew a lot about this woman. I had read hundreds of her letters, all of her books, all of her, the saved um, but unpublished poems and essays and autobiographies that were in the archives, but there were still so many things that I was never going to know. And so it was a good reminder of that.
1: How did Samter's ordeal with polio impact her personality and her psychology?
0: Great question. One of the things I tried to resist doing was psychologizing everyone, but I can at least share with you some of my thoughts here. By the way, I think it's very tempting to psychologize people, especially when you spend so long with their letters and their writings. Um, My strong sense of Jessie Sampter was that she was very sincere, very learned, and maybe a little bit of a pain. (laughs) Um, I think she may have been sometimes a difficult person to have as a friend or as a sister, Uh, but she had very deep and meaningful relationships. So she wrote a long letter to her sister and her sister's family basically every week that she um, was in Palestine. She moved from the U.S. to Palestine in 1919 and basically stayed there for the rest of her life. She did make a couple trips back to the U.S., but she settled in Palestine once she was there. She was also very close friends with Mary Anton. She had a mentor-mentee relationship with Josephine Lazarus, who's the sister of Emma Lazarus. And Josephine Lazarus was, uh, I think, an underrated um, writer. And she also was a mentee of Henrietta Sold. They had a very close relationship also. Um, And Leah Berlin, the woman she met in 1919, Leah was a Russian Zionist who had moved to Palestine several years earlier. And the two of them hit it off. They lived together. Um, they made financial decisions together later on after Samter adopted Tamar, um, the Yemenite toddler. Um, Samter raised her in large part, but Leah Berlin was definitely part of that. Um, she would sometimes later in later years go visit Tamar at school when Jesse and Leah were living on the kibbutz. So all of this to say, um, it's hard to know exactly what Samter's life would have looked like had she not had polio when she was a child. But having had polio, and I think it's pretty clear from her description of her later life that she had what we might now call post-polio syndrome, which could on many days mean um, pain and weakness in her muscles. It certainly meant Um, she, she struggled with mobility on many days. She never used a wheelchair, but there were days that she couldn't walk much. Um, there were even terrible days when she couldn't get out of bed. And I don't know what her life would have been like had she not had polio, but I do know that having had polio attuned her to the physical limitations of being a human and the interdependency of humans, that people, like I mentioned before, um, aren't just autonomous beings who get to go around in the world doing exactly as they like, but in fact are um, have lives that are very much intertwined with others, depend on others. Um, and for her, that felt, Particularly acute, particularly in the forefront. But she didn't necessarily see that as a bad thing. She in fact saw it as part of everyone's life that were all dependent on one another.
1: What parallels did Samter perceive between her life and Job's in the book of Job in the Bible? How did she how did she perceive the interconnection?
0: So she writes, um, in one, of, in one of her unpublished autobiographies that she sees herself as the child, Job. Because when she um, came down with polio, it was right around the same time that her father died. Because of the polio, she could no longer play the violin, the doctors told her, and that had been a major source of joy. And so she felt... I have nothing left to lose, God has taken everything from me, just like the character Job in the Bible. Um, however, it's she sees her own story as a little bit different from Job, in the sense that she does not react to this by saying, um, I absolutely trust you, God, but she reacts to this with a little more skepticism. She does see herself as a tragic figure like Job, but then she also questions. What does it mean to have a relationship with a God who would take all of these things away from me? And her vision of God is not ever a very personalized God. It's not a God who would make an individual decision about a person and then punish them in a certain kind of way. Her idea about God is a much broader sometimes bordering on pantheistic or panentheistic um, vision of and all embracing sometimes she'll use nature as the word so there is also this tension because she doesn't see god the way job sees god right job sees god as a personality and Samter knows that this is one of the gods of the Bible, seeing God as a personality, but that's not her theological approach. She doesn't believe that God is more or less one personality in the sky, but rather that God is unity or capital N nature or something more like that. So Job as a figure is someone she can compare herself to, even if she doesn't share his... The- theology.
1: In what ways does your book contribute to debates surrounding quote-unquote muscular Zionism?
0: I think the biggest thing that it does is demonstrate to us that not all Zionists bought into muscular Zionism in the same way. Samter was a very outspoken Zionist um, from the middle of the 1910s to the end of her life. She wrote essays and poems and educational material promoting Zionism. She was extremely active in Hadassah, the American Women's Zionist Organization. And we might say, hmm, all of this does not seem to line up with the idea that what a good Zionist does is go to Palestine and work the land. And In many of her moments she recognized that she was not the typical Zionist. She was disabled. She could not plow the fields for hours on end or really at all. And yet she saw something of importance in the idea that uh, the Jewish people should be a people, should have a culture and should have a place to develop that peoplehood and culture. I think that it's useful to look at the ways that she engages the larger conversation about muscular Zionism. There are times that she basically buys into it. She has a moment when she says, I had a dream that I gave my life for Ahalutz, who is a male pioneer a male Zionist pioneer, and she feels like maybe that's the right thing to do. In that moment, of course, she's very much buying into the muscular Zionism, and she's saying, my life is worth less than this muscular Zionist male ideal. But then there are lots of other moments where she says, hmm, actually, I have plenty to contribute, and so do all of these other people. So do these other women who are near me in the hospital, so do these people who are injured, so do these people who are deaf. Um, that all of these people are part of the Jewish people and all of these people have something important to contribute and ideas about muscular Zionism are damaging. They're excluding a bunch of people who are important to the Zionist project and should be included in the Zionist project. So. I think that she's a really good reminder for us that zionism doesn't speak with one voice not in the not in the past and probably not in the present either um I think she reminds us too that there were many paths possible for zionism to take and so the fact that historically it went in one direction does not mean that that was only the, ever direct, only the only direction that was ever possible, right? That there were multiple possibilities. And I think she shows us this with her critique from within um, that muscular Zionism does not have to be the only Zionism or even the loudest kind of Zionism.
1: In what ways, if any, do you personally see yourself in Jesse Samter? Do you feel comfortable speaking about yourself?
0: I can speak about myself a little bit. I think that in some ways we're quite similar. I really found the approach of what I thought of as embodied knowledge. So doing the things that she did, going the places that she went, um, to be a useful way to see what might be similar about us. So for example, I planted the kind of plants that she planted. I grew things from steed. Um, so when she grew nasturtiums, I tried to grow nasturtiums. Mine looked really crummy, but they grew. Um, <laughs> when she wrote poetry about the birds in New York City, I sat and looked and listened for the birds in New York City, which is not something that everyone does apart from, say, bird watching in Central Park, which was not what she was up to. She was just interested in, you know, the starlings hopping about. And so I thought, oh, what do you experience? What do you hear? What might you think about if you sit in the city near where she grew up and listen to the birds? So I think both of us, these things suggest, um, have not only an appreciation for nature, but a strong sense that humans and the natural world are fundamentally interconnected and that we both experience that in our lives daily i think there are lots of things that are quite different about us um she prided herself on her poetry at times i am not a poet i'm not particularly creative um she was musical I am not really musical. I think she also sometimes took her friends and family for granted in ways that I hope that I do not do. Um, she was, however, very plain spoken with people. And I think that's maybe a, sh- a trait that we share. Um, so, yeah, I think there are there are lots of sort of personality things, um, outlooks on the world that we might have in common, but also... I did not feel myself fundamentally identifying with her um, much at all. Uh, although I suppose we grew up not very far from one another and, um, and so some of our upbringings might not have been so terribly different, although she was raised in an ethical culture family and then returned to Judaism. Her parents were Jewish and had moved to ethical culture and she um, became Jewish as a young adult. So there's certainly religious biography differences Uh, But I think on the whole, I would say we're fairly different people um, who maybe share some outlooks and a few experiences.
1: This is another personal question, and please feel no no need to respond with any confidential or sensitive information. But the question is as follows. Um, As a person, were there any adversities or traumas that you personally or vicariously experienced? which enabled you to empathize with Samter and feel her pain on an intimate level. Can you explain were there any experiences of suffering that you personally or, exper- or vicariously experienced that enabled you to write as sensitively as you did about Samter?
0: This is a really good question because it gets at the heart of the possibilities and the limits of what I call the embodied knowledge. So that's the idea that my embodied experiences could tell me about someone else's embodied experiences. In the end, I think there are real limitations to this, even if, for example, I had polio when I was 12. I'm not sure how much my embodied experience would tell me about hers. How would I know if this pain that I feel was the same pain that she felt. We already know it's really difficult to put pain into words. We usually use metaphors. So this was a complicating factor for me throughout. Um, I'm really suspicious as are most people who think about disability of the idea that you can do something like put a blindfold on and then you'll know what it's like to be blind or sit in a wheelchair and then you'll know what it's like to use a wheelchair every day. If we're skeptical of those things, then we might also be skeptical of um, other kinds of comparisons. However, I do think that there are certain kinds of experiences that can get you to ask different questions or get you to attend to different things, pay attention to different moments in someone's life. And here, I think, this is what was helpful for me um so for example i tore my acl uh i don't know six or eight years ago and that meant i couldn't put weight on that foot i used crutches um it made me think differently about going places it made me think differently about the built environment made me think differently about stairs made me think differently about the weather and all of these things I think are important, as I put it, questions to ask. So for Samter, what would she think differently about? She thought differently about writing or about typing because her hands were something that often experienced pain and she described them after the polio as being deformed. So she would have a different experience of letter writing or of typing a manuscript than someone who wasn't in her situation. and. This, to me, was the most valuable part of pursuing this embod- you know, embodied knowledge, was reflecting on my own experience and then saying, what questions should I be asking? What questions might illuminate Samter's situation or Samter's experiences that I might not have thought to ask? if I weren't paying close attention to her embodied life.
1: What does your book teach us about aesthetics? How does Jesse Samter's story embody competing ideas about beauty in the early 20th century and in Zionism?
0: Ooh, great question. This isn't a full answer to that, but a partial answer is this. One of the things I struggled with when I was writing this book was thinking about Samter's poetry. I think some of it is pretty bad. (laughs) And when I say bad, I mean, it's aesthetically bad. I don't think her readers read it because it was beautiful. I think her readers read it because it expressed important political sentiments. I think it mobilized important illusions and metaphors. I think it appealed to Zionist publications because it showed the possible range of Zionist expressions. But I would be hard-pressed to guess um I would be hard-pressed to say that I think that people read it because it was wonderful or beautiful. I don't think anyone today reads it because it's wonderful or beautiful. Although one of her one of the songs um that she wrote is part of the union songster in the reform movement. So some of her output certainly was beautiful. Many of her essays are in fact beautiful, um, especially the ones that reflect on her own personal experience. Like there's a short unpublished essay called Validity that plays on the valid, invalid, invalid distinctions. Um, And the closing of that is that every life is valid if one lives it. And that, I think, that that makes it sound kind of trite. I think it's, in fact, not trite. But that, I think, is a beautiful essay. So I don't quite know that this is a lesson, but it was something useful for me to notice. And that is that beauty might be one of the criteria upon which we judge poetry and essays and books. And yet there might be something important about them even when they're not beautiful. So like those political poems that are published in the Maccabean Journal, um, which is the US Zionist magazine, those might not be beautiful. um, But we should still think about them and and we might imagine ways that poetry could be meaningful apart from its aesthetics.
1: What is your book's contribution to American Jewish history?
0: there are many answers to this, but I'll say two things. One thing is enumerating and really giving life to alternative Zionisms. So Samter was in many ways a mainstream Zionist, but in other ways, she wasn't at all. I mean, she was one of the few voices who was saying, we need to educate deaf children in Palestine because they're an important part of the Jewish people. So in some practical content way, I think remembering or learning for the first time that there are multiple voices within Zionism, um, whether that's in the US or in Palestine, and that some of those represent roads not taken, right? Some of them represent ways that subsequent Zionism didn't go muscular Zionism kind of does win the day. Uh, We don't end up with a a Zionism in 1930 that's incredibly inclusive of disabled people, for example. The other thing that I hope that it does is to think about American Jewish history as very much integrated into an American religious history. So here I'm thinking about Samter. She herself grew up ethical culture, um, went to a Unitarian Universalist church for a while, had friends who were both Jewish and not uh, in, the, um, in 1908 and in 1909, um, maybe a little bit later, I might have the dates wrong, uh, but she held a kind of a salon for a group of six teenagers and they discussed theological ideas They discussed ideas about God, about religion. They came from different religious backgrounds. And so Samter, while she was Jewish, and it's perfectly reasonable and good to think about her within Jewish history, was also very connected to other religious people and other religious ideas. She later in her life was translating to do Krishnamurti into Hebrew. So I think Samter is a really good reminder that we shouldn't think of Jewish history as having some sort of walls around it, but rather that it's very much a part of, it's both contributing to and getting contributions from all sorts of other uh, religious histories. And here I'm thinking about the US, but I think we could make similar claims elsewhere. But I think the I think one of the contributions I'm hopeful will be received is this insistence on thinking about American Jewish history as part of American religious history and American religious history as really incorporating American Jewish history.
1: Can you tell us about kibbutz Givat Brenner? Where is it located? Who lived there during Samter's time? Who lives there t- today? What were your personal experiences there like in the context of this research project?
0: Kibbutz Givat Brenner is still operating as a kibbutz. As I'm sure you know, Ari, the kibbutz movement in Israel has had some financial struggles. Uh, fewer people live on kibbutzim than Used to, there's also in many cases been a move away from the very communalist living that we saw in the early years. So for example, when Jesse Samter and Leah Berlin were there, it was very communalist. It's slightly less so now. Um, There's been a move toward more things like owning personal property. And here we're thinking across Israel. Uh, Yvonne Brenner is still... A lovely place and when I was there the um the members of the kibbutz happily showed me around they have a small archive there that is very lovingly kept and so there were there were ways that I could see the history um because the kibbutz has been continuously inhabited and really cared for by its members um, but there are other ways that it's quite different now when Samter and Berlin joined. Give Brenner. <laughs> the, a couple of the Kibbutz members called them not to their faces, but called them old ladies. Um, they were not old ladies; they were in their forties. But, um, but that gives you a sense of the membership at that time. So this would be um, in 1933. It was quite young. Uh, there was. Um, growth at the kibbutz, too. The kibbutz welcomed, it was starting to before Samter died and continued to after she died, um, uh, welcome refugees from Nazi Germany. Um, so it's, yeah, it's been a very vibrant place. Uh, Samter and Berlin really liked it there, although there were ways that Samter didn't quite fit in um there was a discussion when Samter in Berlin wanted to join the kibbutz among the members about whether they should be allowed to join in part because of the physical reasons like how would Samter especially contribute to kibbutz life there was also the question of the money because Samter came with a substantial amount of money not like giant piles of it but enough that she um her money would make a difference to the kibbutz. But she also had plans for what to do with that money. She wanted to create a vegetarian rest home for workers. So workers who were tired or injured or needed a break. Um, And ultimately the kibbutz decided to invite Samter and Berlin to join and allowed her to use the money to create the rest home. It's still there. Um, It's no longer functioning as a vegetarian rest home. Um, as, not long after she died, it stopped being vegetarian. Uh, but many of the current kibbutz members remember it functioning um, basically as a, a rest home and then as a, a place where people would gather um, to watch, you know, the when they were kids to watch movies on the roof on Thursday nights, maybe. I forget the night. But um, you can have a sense even today from the members about a historical past of the kibbutz that is maybe a little bit romanticized but quite different from the contemporary kibbutz, which is um, still vibrant, but like I said, part of a, a perhaps shrinking
1: kibbutz movement. What can you tell us about the Yemenite child that Jesse Samter adopted? How was this arranged? What was their parent-child relationship like? As the child grew older?
0: Some of these things I can't answer. I don't know exactly what the arrangement was, but I do know that Samter um, from not long after she came to Jerusalem, um, would sometimes visit the orphanage. And she visited the orphanage after a snowstorm. And the story was: who knows if this is true, that. Um, a small child had been left at the orphanage during the snowstorm. And Samter saw this child and thought she was delightful and went back to visit her and wrote to her sister, you know, I've spent some time with this girl. Um, Her name is Tamar. I'm thinking about adopting her. And then she did. Um, So we know that Samter adopted her from the orphanage This is kind of interesting given what happens years later, um, where there is a real scandal about Yemenite children being taken from Yemenite mothers and adopted out to usually Ashkenazi women. Um, There's no evidence at all that Tamar, the child, is part of anything that is like a scandal like that, but it does point us to the idea that many um, in this moment, Yemenite families had fewer resources, um, were often seen by the Ashkenazi Zionists as like less good parents. And so it's not totally surprising that um, we might find a Yemenite child at an orphanage and the orphanage might be more than happy to make sure that child is adopted by an Ashkenazi woman like Samter. It is interesting that as far as I can tell from the historical record, no one seemed to bat an eye that she was not married. Um, Maybe this is partially because they just want someone to adopt Yemenite children and good enough, um, but they really don't seem worked up about her single motherness. Uh, So even before this and continuing when Tamara is a child, Jesse Samter is very involved in schooling for Yemenite children. For example, um, when there is a school that's officially supposed to allow Yemenite kids to be taught with Yashkenazi kids, the parents are all real jerks about it. And sometimes the teachers just don't even want to teach the Yemenite kids. And so Samter helps organize a Yemenite kindergarten where Yemenite kids can come and learn the same kinds of things that their peers would be learning. That's just one example. She's very um, invested in Yemenite education. And so, she's very invested in Tamar's education. Um, as Tamar gets older, instead of being educated on the kibbutz, she's sent to school in Tel Aviv. Um, when Samter writes to her sister, she often includes updates on Tamar's schooling, and she sometimes also includes letters from Tamar. So Tamar will like write on the back, and you can see Tamar's handwriting improve as she gets older and older. Um, I I don't know how Tamar felt about her mother, but it is clear to me that Sampter really valued Tamar. And this is interesting to me. Um, She really valued Tamar as her own person. She was not interested in imprinting herself on Tamar at all. She would have reports like Tamar is really excited about this. She really has a passion for paper dolls. Um, she had been, like, cutting out paper dolls. Uh, she's really good with the animals in the neighborhood, which, you know, Semter liked animals, but it wasn't anything special for her. But she would note that this was really um, meaningful to Tamar. Um, there are reports on and off about her learning English and her desire to learn English, but then her kind of dragging her feet in a sort of teenage way about learning English. Um, so it is it it did strike me, as parents go, Samter was very interested in raising a child who was her own person rather than a mini-me, as we might say.
1: Much attention has been paid in Israel to the missing Yemenite children affair. In what ways does your study of Samter and her life shed light on this tragedy and its context?
0: Yeah, so I mentioned some of this when I... Um was just discussing that. I think that, even though it's from an earlier historical period, the idea that Yemenite kids might end up at an orphanage um, is makes historical sense because I think um, it's reasonable to say that most of the doctors would have assumed, that Yemenite mothers were less fit mothers. They understood less of the science. They weren't um, using the most up-to-date ways of, you know, nursing or child rearing. So there would have been a medical prejudice against Yemenite ways of parenting. Um, And there just would have been fewer resources within Yemenite communities to care for Yemenite babies. Um, I think it's fair to say it's extraordinarily unlikely in any historical period that people give up babies that they're perfectly, um, that they want and that they're perfectly able to care for. So that there's something else going on when a baby is given up, whether it's um, medical issues that the parents feel they can't care for or um, economic issues that mean they can't be cared for or other things that are going on, right? And I think many of those other things we can say because of the financial structures and the social structures and the ideals within the yeshuv, um, which are all designed to benefit more Ashkenazi Zionists, these things often worked against Yemenite, especially mothers and children. So while I don't think that this case is a likely one of um, doctors or other people in medical establishments taking away wanted and cared for babies. I do think some of the things that allowed that later um, development, that later removal of, of Yemenite children from loving families, is we can see some of those same structures and ideological assumptions about what kind of parenting is best and what cultural kinds of parenting. Our best, we can see those in place in the earlier period with Samter.
1: What were Samter's views on Jewish Arab relations in Palestine?
0: Yeah, this is complicated. Maybe it could fill a whole book on its own. It's helpful to start out by saying she's a binationalist. She does not see a Jewish state in Palestine as um, we should just have one Jewish state and all of the Arabs should go away. And in fact, she's one of the um, one of the most articulate um, writers to come out of the U.S. and and maybe beyond, too, about the fact that there are Arabs who are living there. There are Arabs who are neighbors in many U.S. Zionist publications, you can read the whole thing and Arabs never show up. It's like they don't live in Palestine or they're not there. And Samter was not interested in just closing her eyes to Arabs as neighbors. Um, the reason this is a complicated answer is that there are moments when Samter says Jews and Arabs need to live together. We're brothers. We're related historically. And. Um, we might have different cultures and different strengths, but what we need to do is live side by side. But then there are other moments when she says, well, Arabs seem more predisposed toward violence or Arabs need to be more civilized. Um, and those, that kind of rhetoric is very much uh, echoed in other corners of the Zionist movement, as well as uh, the British. So interestingly, if we wanna talk about Jewish-Arab relations for Jesse Sampter, we we always end up talking about the British because she really thinks that the British are the bad guys. She thinks that the British are the ones who are stoking hatred between Jews and non-Jewish Arabs because there are Jewish Arabs, right? So like Yemenites, for example. But here we're talking about mostly Muslim and some Christian Arabs. she thinks the British are the ones who are really pushing that conflict. The British are the ones who are setting it up to be scarcity of resources. So these people must fight those people for control. Um, And she pretty consistently saves her most critical words for the British folks who are running Mandate Palestine. Um, And when she sees... The violence between Jews and non-Jewish Arabs, she says. Look, people shouldn't be doing this. This was bad. But also, what are the British doing that they're allowing this or creating the conditions for this to happen?
1: How did Samter view the 1929 Hebron massacre?
0: Yeah. So this is this is exactly that um, dynamic, right? In many ways, she says um, the the fault lies with the British, that we see both violence from non-Jewish Arabs directed at Jews and from Jews directed at non-Jewish Arabs. And this is yet one more example of the British aren't doing their jobs. Not only are they not doing their administrative jobs, they're they're really encouraging this kind of in, intercommunal violence. Um, and, and so she's very saddened at the loss of life and also... A bit angry that it was allowed to happen because she thinks it could have and maybe should have been prevented
1: can you comment on jesse samter's relationship with judaism can you comment on her journey into religious observance how when and why did this occur she
0: as i mentioned was raised in an ethical culture family um in new york city ethical culture is a uh religious movement that sort of grew out of Judaism. Felix Adler, its major leader, uh, did rabbinical training, but then could not bring himself in his account um, to be a traditional rabbi. Ethical culture has the motto, deed, not creed. So the idea is that one should do good things, but it's less important to sign on to any particular creeds or dogmas. And her, the rest of her family, like her sister, continued on um, identifying with ethical culture. Sampter basically self-identified as a seeker. As a young adult, she went to a Unitarian Universalist church for a little while. Um, and in fact, at that univers- Universal- Unitarian Universalist church, she met Hyman Siegel, who was a poet and a Zionist. And that led her down the path of Zionism. She was very excited about it. And so interestingly, she becomes a Zionist before she really gets invested in Judaism. So for her, this means thinking about Jewishness as peoplehood, as culture, as connection among Jews. And then from there, she moves to Judaism. It's during this time that she meets Henrietta Zold, who um, introduces her into many Jewish circles and Jewish practice. Um, She starts learning Hebrew. She tries what we would think of as greater religious observance, not quite orthodoxy, but close to it for a little bit, but decides that's not quite for her. Uh, Her theological ideas continue to develop and grow, but she still has this Idea of God as part of the natural world or as integrated with the natural world rather than as an independent personality commandment giver or something like that. Um, So she very much identifies with the Jewish people. And she's also a little bit flexible about what her Judaism might be. Um, If she stayed in the US, we would think of her as maybe kind of in the conservative movement, but maybe sometimes a little more toward reform. Many of her friends um, were either in the conservative movement or like Mary Anton, not identifying as part of a Jewish movement. And in fact, thinking about Jewishness alongside other religious traditions. So in some ways, she's ha- she has ideas that are very central to who she is. Um, that are about Jewishness. Um, and in other ways, she's maybe a little less traditional in her Judaism, although she, like early on um, in her Zionist career, I'm thinking about a pamphlet where she says Jews should celebrate Hanukkah and not Christmas, um, which sounds like an obvious thing to us now maybe, but actually was very it was very common for especially people from German Jewish families to celebrate Christmas too. She did as a child, both um. And and so she's interested in the ways, especially that religion and religious practices can support the idea of a peoplehood or a culture of Jewishness, we might say. Um, Yeah, I mean, there's tons to say about her own theology, um, but it is fair to say that her interactions with Judaism in its established forms Are not easy to describe it's not like oh she was just a real member of a reform congregation not that there were really in palestine at the time um so she's invested in judaism but she's also invested in her own kind of judaism that in many ways lines up with those around her but in some other ways does not
1: how has samter been remembered after her death how did her death change her reputation
0: one thing that made me write this book was that Sampter was more or less not remembered. That's not true in every situation. The kibbutz remembers her and remembers her mostly fondly. She shows up occasionally in bits and pieces of scholars' work today, usually as an example of something. In the mid-1950s, a woman named Bertha Bad Strauss wrote a biography of her, and that biography claims Sampter as a as a kind of Reconstructionist Jew. And of course, Sampter was friendly with Mordecai Kaplan and did learn from him. But it was interesting to, for me to see, after her death, that some people described Sampter basically in their own image, right? So Bertha Bodstrauss herself was a Reconstructionist Jew with a very interesting biography. Uh, and, and she saw Sampter as an educator and as a Reconstructionist. These were things that she was too. Um, The many of the women from Hadassah saw Samter as the best of Hadassah. Right, she was like the, you know, one of the most articulate Hadassah ladies. Uh, And then she was more or less not remembered. Um, She doesn't play a big role in any academic books other than that biography that I mentioned. She's not well known in histories of Zionism. She's She was not even widely celebrated in kind of women's circles, like women's Jewish history circles. Um, there are no roads named after her in Israel like there are, say, Henrietta Zold. And so this got me to wondering, why is it that she's not really remembered? Um, I think some of this is about the the details of her life. She was survived by Tamar, um, but she didn't have a traditional family in the sense of uh, a husband and many children who were in a position or interested in making her legacy obvious to others. Um, I think her, the fact that her brand of Zionism was not really the brand of Zionism that got picked up and went for, and, and went forward is another reason um, because she was critical of some of that Zionism, yet another reason that some subsequent people might be less interested in recovering her or using her in those ways. I um, you know to promote their uh, own political ideals. And I also think because she's not an easy fit for stories about muscular Zionism, um, maybe it wasn't quite so appealing to tell that story or maybe people didn't quite know where to fit it. So I think for a bunch of reasons, she was largely not remembered. And I think it behooves us to ask why some people get remembered and why some people don't get remembered and what we might learn from remembering some of the people who... Um, maybe don't fit the stories we tell so neatly.
1: As we bring our dialogue today to a close, do you mind sharing what you're working on now or next as your current work?
0: So the answer is several things. One of them is inspired a bit by Samter, and that is uh, Andrea Cooper, who is at UNC and I are embarking on a project thinking about women as Jewish thinkers. And that will be a collaborative project uh, among many of us to ask different questions so that we can expand the canon of Jewish thought to include people who are not just men. Um, We think that we'll get to ask really interesting questions. We'll get to explore different genres and hopefully shed some light on even our current canonical sources. I'm also working on Uh, an accessible book about Judaism in the Americas. And so here I want to think hemispherically. There's a, a sort of standard story about Jews in the U.S., and that begins with 23 refugees from Brazil landing in New Amsterdam. And while that's an important story, I think that story highlights the U.S. in ways that might not always be warranted. Those Jews were coming from somewhere else in the New World. They were coming from Brazil. And at that same time, there were other Jews in Latin America and the Caribbean. And in fact, Latin America and the Caribbean were really the center of American Jewish life until the 19th century. So I'm interested in telling this story in an integrated way, not just because I think it's a more accurate history, but also because it reorients some of our themes. For example, it makes us realize that multiracial Jewish communities are not something brand new in the present, that in fact, multiracial Jewish communities were the norm rather than the exception in those early years. And then historical developments, including uh, Jews recognizing the cultural value of whiteness um, meant that Jewish communities looked more and more racially homogenous. So that's just one thing I think we can get out of telling a, a different story in a hemispheric way. Um, I wish you the yeah, best. There are other, oh, I sorry. Best
1: of luck with that work. You, you're saying, sorry.
0: No, um, I was just going to say there are other little bits of piece, and pieces of things I'm working on, but um but those are the two big ones I'm thinking about right now.
1: It sounds superb. Um I wish you best of luck with that work and would be honored to remain in touch with you as you bring those projects to fruition.
0: Thank you so much, Ari. This has been a pleasure.
1: Thank you. It was my humble honor. To our listeners, I am your host on the New Books Network, Ari Barbalat. Today, I have been in dialogue with Sarah Imhoff regarding her new book, The Lives of Jesse Samter, Queer Disabled Zionist published by Duke University Press 2022. Sarah is Jay and Jeannie Schottenstein Chair in Jewish Studies at Indiana University. She is also Associate Professor in Religious Studies and in the Born Jewish Studies Program at Indiana University. Thank you.